Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Hello. You're listening to On Israel in Al Monitor. I am Ben Kaspit from Tel Aviv. As we sit in our warm, dry homes, millions of Ukrainians are experiencing cold, hunger, and above all, despair. Both sides keep upping the ante. Zelensky sees himself as a modern-day Churchill, but could end up more like Che Guevara. Putin is dragging his nation back to the Dark Ages. Prime Minister Bennett has appointed himself as a mediator between them, a role that's making some Israelis very unhappy. His government is torn between wanting to stand on the right side of history and what is regard, it regards as a vital national interest. At stake is not only Israel's campaign to oust Iran from Syria, where Russian forces are deployed, but also the fate of a quarter million Ukrainian Jews most of whom have families and friends among Israel's large post-Soviet immigrant community. The collapse of the Soviet Union set off a tsunami of Jewish immigration from Russia, Ukraine, and other former Soviet republics, deeply impacting every facet of life here. Israel now sees another opportunity to provide homes for tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of traumatized Jews fleeing Ukraine and Russia in, a, in, in, in keeping with its core mission of serving as a heaven for Jews of the world. The Prime Minister's office describes Israeli policy as measured, seeking a precarious balance between keeping Putin sweet and ensuring its alliance with the liberal Western world doesn't turn sour. Has this policy been successful? Too soon to say. We will dis be discussing this, the war in Europe, and the feelings of the two million strong Russian-speaking community in Israel with former Knesset member, journalist and researcher Ksenia Svetlova. Born in Moscow, Svetlova's family immigrated to Israel after the Soviet collapse. She is fluent in Russian and Arabic and Hebrew and English, has covered the hotspots of the Middle East as a journalist and analyst. She was elected to the Knesset on the ticket of the center-left Zionist camp and served as a member of the Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee. She is currently a program director at the Mitvim Institute for Regional Foreign Policies and a fellow researcher, researcher in the Institute of Policy and Strategy at the Reichmann University. Ksenia Svetlova will be with us right after this short break. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department Correspondent at Al Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell, I'm Al Monitor's video editor. 
Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let Al Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to Al Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. I'm privileged to say... uh... Hello, and uh, thank you for joining us here in, uh, on Israel in Al Monitor. Uh, my colleague, uh, Ksenia Svetlova, former Knesset member. Shalom, Ksenia, and thank you for joining us here. Shalom, Ben. Thanks for having me. Okay. Uh, I want to ask you first, uh, would you share with us some of your personal uh, feelings about uh, looking at this war, the atrocities, in uh, in uh, Mariupol, in Kiev, in in Lviv, as someone who grew up in Moscow and has made her, her home in Israel. Well, uh, what can I tell you, Ben? Um, I feel that I'm so stunned, and this is such a trauma uh, because uh, I have, uh, I, I, indeed, I grew up in Moscow, and I have a lot of friends and even relatives to, who still live there. But I'm also very attached to Ukraine. Uh, and I have also friends there who are actually a member of Russian opposition who made their home in Kiev and uh, they escaped, they ran away from the atrocities of Russian regime in Russia uh, and uh, they chose to make their homes in Kiev and they were working there but they were very dedicated, there were a lot of journalists and now it's all ruined and I can tell you that uh, I cannot even start to process uh, uh, what is happening. And I'm just uh, making myself very, very busy with helping people to evacuate, uh, with writing about what is happening, uh, with connecting people with each other, you know, getting some help to those who need it and stuff like this. Do you think Israel's interests, uh, Russia's presence in Syria and the many thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of Jews in the war zone justify its policy of playing both sides of the fence? Um, I have to tell you first that uh, it may seem now that uh, Israel's concern is first of all its security and that it operates uh, regarding to what is happening in Syria and trying to protect its interests vis-a-vis Russia. But frankly speaking, even in 2014, eight years ago, when uh, Putin took the first bite uh, of uh, Russians, of uh, Ukrainian sovereignty, and the next Crimea, uh, back then, Israel also didn't denounce uh, uh, Russian's demeanor, uh, and uh, it was pressured very hard by Obama administration, but it, it just refused uh, in, uh, totally to do so, even though Russia was still not involved military in Syria. So I think this policy of sitting on both chairs, uh, it's not justified, it was not justified in 2014, of course, it's not justified now uh, when there are thousands and thousands of Jews among, of course, with thousands and millions of Ukrainians uh, who are being 
murdered in their houses, who are sitting in shelters, who are trying to evacuate uh, despite the fire that uh, uh, that is being shot on them. Uh, and uh, most uh, of all, I think it's not justified because Israel is a democratic state and it's obliged to be on the right side of the history, as they say. President Putin seems uh, bugged down in the Ukraine mud. According to initial assessments, Russians were uh, supposed to have conquered Kiev within 48 hours. It's been three weeks and Kiev is still in Ukrainian hands. Putin seems to have wanted a repeat of his uh, Crimean victory in 2014 and is uh, instead facing a repeat of his uh, Chechnya disaster. How do you see Putin at this point in time more dangerous than he was uh, at the beginning or less? Is he trying to find an acceptable end to the war uh, or is he determined to keep going until he bombs all of Ukraine into rubble? Um, you know, I do not know whether he had this kind of idea that it's possible to take over the whole of Ukraine uh, in a couple of days and topple the government uh, in DPS. So then uh, his chief of staff, as well as uh, his all of his military advisors should be fired in this very second. Uh, but I can tell you that uh, step by step, he is achieving his goals. Uh, despite the Ukrainians' victories and despite the Ukrainians' uh, so... Uh, heroically defending their homeland. But he is uh, succeeding in conquering the eastern and the southeastern part of Ukraine. And probably he will attempt to detach it uh, from the rest of the country. Uh, uh, he needs his victory image. So he will not, I think, uh, give up uh, conquering Kiev or at least bombing it to rubble uh, because this is what he does already with Kharkiv and with other Ukrainian cities. Uh, I, I think that the assessment of his danger has grown uh, uh, tremendously uh, in the West. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, three weeks ago, you know, just a few people uh, believed uh, that he will actually go all the way. Now we have uh, these discussions of the possibility of tactical nuclear uh, weapon that, that might be applied against uh, Ukraine. So, of course, I believe that, yes, he is uh, dangerous. He is more dangerous. Uh, perhaps that many people assessed uh, and uh, he might want to go all the way just to make a point because he needs to rally uh, his people, his base uh, at his uh, home uh, and uh, nothing short of the some kind of victory, you know, so because he basically put very wide goals. What is denazification? You know, I, you don't know it. I don't know it. What does he mean by this? Uh, what, he does, what does he mean by demilitarization? What does he mean by punishing of the uh, Nazis and the, all of the right, uh, extreme right wing in uh, Ukraine? If he believes that also Zelensky government is part of the uh, extreme right wing and Nazi, uh, then he will go after them. Uh, it might take some, it might take time, but uh, seemingly he is determined to achieve uh, his goals. But even it will be a long military adventure. I seem to remember that at uh, the beginning of uh, this crisis, you spoke about the decisive impact of sanctions on Putin, the speed and extent of the sanctions do indeed appear to have uh, surprised him. Do you see them as a game changer? Could they endanger his hold on power? Or maybe can the West win without firing one bullet, just uh, putting the, the Russian economy on its knees? Sanctions will not save Ukraine, I can tell you that for sure. They will not stop the carnage. Uh, sanctions are for long term. Uh, 
uh, and uh, if Iran uh, succeeded to stand up and uh, to continue maintain you know, its uh, regime and uh, its policies and even expand them, uh, if North Korea succeeded to do this, there is no reason, despite this package being really an extensive and unprecedented package, nothing uh, of a kind uh, had happened to a country that was so ingrained in uh, Western and global economies so far. Uh, but we have to be realistic. Uh, this will not prevent from Putin from bombing now Mariupol and Kharkiv and Chernigov and Kiev, and it will not stop the occupation of Ukraine. So uh, in the long term, I think that, yes, there is a potential for weakening uh, uh, Putin's, uh, Putin's uh, 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 regime. Uh, there is a potential uh, to maybe uh, uh, from prevent from him to spending so much money on the military, uh, simply because his citizens will not be able to afford bread uh, anymore. Uh, but uh, again, you know, it might take years. We do not know what will happen. Uh, there might be some game changers from within the, you know, Putin's uh, uh, regime. Uh, but uh, this is a, you know, this is a long shot. This is not something that we can build upon. If the West wants to save Ukraine, it must do much more than just uh, rely on sanctions uh, to have some effect. So I'll jump with you straight to, to the next question because it's tough. I just interviewed Senator Joe Lieberman, a former senator, a, a very a, a leader, a democratic leader from the United States. He's in Israel, marking 30 years uh, to the decease of uh, Menachem Begin. And he said that NATO and the US should force immediately a no-fly zone over Ukraine. As we all know, Putin will see this as war, as declaration of war. And I wanted to ask you, first, do you agree that NATO has uh, to, to, uh, to do such a thing, a no-fly zone? And uh, maybe it might take this local war turn, uh, to turn it into a world war. Because, you know, U.S. intelligence, which has been uh, surprisingly accurate in mm -hmm. its assessment so far, is warning that Putin may use chemical or biological weapons. He has already placed Russia's nuclear forces on alert, as you mentioned before. All these concerns justified, or is he only flexing the muscles that he's uh, so fond of displaying in his ham uh, uh, photos? Uh, yes, it is indeed very tough, and I do not uh, envy at all the policymakers uh, in US, Europe, or in Israel, uh, because uh, this is incredibly difficult when you are dealing uh, with a regime uh, that uh, uh, doesn't, um, doesn't have any uh, respect for agreements, uh, for truth, uh, for trust, uh, and uh, uh, if they said uh, that Ukraine is likely, the, the propaganda, the Russian propaganda, said that Ukraine is likely to use chemical weapons. It means that Russia itself can use chemical weapons. Uh, and not necessarily, you know, if uh, it, if uh, West will become engaged uh, furthermore uh, in this uh, warfare. Uh, so uh, uh, I can tell you that at some point, uh, they will need to be, to form a policy in regards uh, to Putin's behavior, uh, because it encourages basically everybody with a bomb, whether it's a dirty bomb, whether it's the bomb that they already have the nuclear weapon. Uh, I'm looking at Iran and I'm thinking, you know, out loud, because uh, right now uh, there is no uh, opportunity to know whether GCPOA will be signed or not. But if it will not be signed and eventually they will become a border state and then they will have the bomb, uh, whether they would want to perhaps replicate Putin's behavior. 
if the world will not be able to produce uh, some, some kind of policy uh, that will be able to deter uh, forces uh, of uh, evil, such as Russia, such as Iran, you know, such as other states that might be getting uh, a nuclear weapon anytime soon. And believe me, you know, I'm looking at the Middle East and there are countries, at least free countries, uh, who would want to get their weapon uh, as soon as possible. Uh, because when, we look, they, when they look at what is happening, believe me, nobody wants to be the underdog. Uh, so we are looking uh, you know, at the uh, uh, future of nuclear race uh, on speeds here in this region, and not only in this region. Uh, and there should be a, a red line, where the, should ride, like, the, the red line should be. Uh, whether it will be Putin's next invasion to perhaps uh, Latvia or Lithuania, we don't know. Uh, but uh, I, th I think that uh, if right now we are already experiencing some partly a global war, then uh, yes, I think West should be much, much more determined uh, and it should be ready to also to fight. Uh, because uh, when you need to uh, deter the evil, uh, just as happened in the Second World War, then eventually you see that compromises can get you nowhere. Uh, and uh, I think that uh, Putin, he, one of his assumptions was, at least this is what his propaganda used to say all the time. The West is weak. They don't want to fight. They will never send their forces anywhere. And he was uh, right. They want to withdraw. And he was, he was right until now he was right. He was right because uh, the Ukrainians are being sacrificed basically here uh, for the sake of the red line that was drawn immediately after the border of Ukraine. And I remember what uh, the Winston Churchill said uh, in uh, the beginning of World War II, that uh, Britain had to choose between disgrace and war. It chose disgrace and it will get war. And actually you said the same now about uh, the West behavior. Let's talk about the, the Russians. Despite the, the tight media control and social media blackout, can you sense and analyze the feelings of the average Moscovite about this war? You know, just like there is no average Jerusalemite uh, or Tehranian uh, or even New Yorker, there is no average Moscovite. You know, uh, I can talk about the feelings uh, in my milieu, but they are mostly journalists, uh, well-educated uh, friends of mine that have, have been to the West many times. Uh, some of them have Western education. They are, of course, shocked uh, and uh, they are terrified about what is happening. They feel very much ashamed just like the Germans, some of the Germans were ashamed after the World War II. Uh, they want to run away, but there is no place for all of them, of course. And believe me, nobody's waiting for the Russians at this moment, anywhere, basically. Um, so uh, there are those, but there are also other people. Uh, I think they are the silent majority that uh, did not support actively the war until now. Now there is this specific moment, uh, short time, I think, uh, of um, mobilization around the regime uh, because uh, it is being performed uh, as played out at the, at the Russian propaganda channels as uh, uh, the West is attacking us. The West is waging the you know, um, economic war against Russia, but we shall be together and we will be strong and we will persevere. There is this kind of feeling right now. Uh, there are people who are completely uh, brainwashed by the propaganda and they really think that uh, Ukraine is full of Nazis. Uh, and druggers and the uh, people who are dangerous uh, to Russia. Uh, and there are those who are still undecisive and when they will feel uh, the burden of the sanctions. And I think it will be very, very, very soon because I already, uh, I have uh, information from close friends 
that there is lack of some medicines uh, in the drugstores and the other medicines became very expensive. So it will, of course, affect mostly the most fragile part of the population, elder people, single moms. Uh, so in due time, after some time, I don't know when, but when there will be piles of Russian soldiers, of bodies who will come back from Ukraine and the life will become unbearable, perhaps there will be a change then. At this moment, I think that it is only a fraction uh, of Moscovites or you know, residents of St. Petersburg that leave the vicinity of their homes and go out and risk themselves and protest uh, uh, against this war. And uh, as a follow-up question on this, uh, uh, I think the people that are mostly hurt right now from the sanctions are the oligarchs, the, the Russian oligarchs. We know, of course, Roman Abramovich, which is also an Israeli, and many others. But we're talking about uh, dozens of billionaires that most of them are in uh, Putin's close secret of uh, friends or colleagues or, uh, or uh, I don't know what. But now they are they are running for their for their money. They are trying to sell their yachts, and and I, I read that the the, the luxurious apartments in New York, and the the West is closing on them. Can it affect Putin himself? Um, I believe uh, that um, first of all there is this concept uh, of the Kremlin towers. Uh, it means that uh, there are a few Kremlin towers which symbolize various uh, uh, bases of power, you know, centers of power in Kremlin, because it's not uh, all unified and it's all not all homogeneous, okay? So there are various uh, organs of security. There is the army, but there is also the FSB, uh, and there are also the oligarchs. But the oligarchs, you have to understand, they basically lost their war against Putin and his people who are coming from security structures back in the beginning of 2000s. Uh, the person who is most uh, associated with this uh, war is Mikhail Khodorkovsky. Uh, another one is Leonid Nevzlin, uh, Gusinski. You know, these uh, guys from the uh, late 90s and beginning of the 2000s, they understood back then what was happening. They tried to uh, work against uh, and they were just uh, succumbed and uh, they were destroyed. The others who stayed, they chose to rally around Putin and uh, they became totally dependent on Putin. So maybe they are unhappy now. I understand perfectly that, you know, if you are uh, uh, used to spend your winters in uh, Aspen and in other resorts, uh, so then coming back to Moscow uh, might not be the dream of your life. Uh, but uh, from the other side, um, they are dependent on Putin, not uh, vice versa. Uh, so the question is whether the milieu of people who represent the security establishment, the army, the FSB, the intelligence, uh, if they will become unhappy for some reason, if they will understand that, wow, you know, we, it, there is a big problem there uh, and uh, that their personal interests are in danger, uh, then I think, you know, they, there might be some kind of movement, but not the oligarchs, you know, I, first of all, I would not pity them. They are still much better off than uh, poor grandmothers uh, who only have uh, $100 of pension uh, each month, okay? And they have to survive on that. And uh, the rubble just crashed and there is no uh, way that they, they can get any money, any more money for drugs and uh, for uh, uh, just livelihood and so on. Uh, so I think that the salvation will not come from uh, people like Abramovich or Deripaska or any one of uh, these guys who 
were crying now so hard for their money, which is actually not theirs at all. Okay, let's uh, say something about uh, the other side, the, uh, the Ukrainians and President Zelensky is uh, supposed to respond uh, somewhere, somehow, uh, soon to Russia's conditions for ending the war, although Russia seems to have uh, moderated some demands. Zelensky will still have to give up uh, Donbass, declare Ukrainian neutrality and commit to stay out of NATO, etc. If you were advising him, what you'd, would you say? Well, I'm always very wary with uh, advising people who are much smarter than me. Uh, and uh, I would just say that uh, he has to do what is right for Ukraine. And uh, nobody knows exactly what the Putin offers was, because uh, many of the things that are coming from Russia, you have to understand uh, that it's disinformation, that, uh, that's, that it's uh, merely propaganda, uh, and that basically this kind of negotiation should only start after the ceasefire, you know, in any condition, you do not have the political negotiation uh, when uh, the bombs are exploding uh, at citizens' houses. Uh, so you first negotiate on the ceasefire, and then when there is quiet, when people can have the relief, then you talk about politics. I do not know what is actually on the table because, you know, we, we first of all, we hear conflicting messages all the time. Uh, some come from the Russian MFA and others come from the talks in, uh, in uh, Belarus. And there is another thing that was coming up from the uh, negotiations, uh, attempt of negotiations and mediation uh, with uh, Prime Minister Bennett. Uh, but I think uh, that uh, only Zelensky knows what yeah. really was proposed to him. And he has to choose very, wi very wise uh, because uh, uh, he must know that to make a compromise with a bear is very dangerous. He, he can take your finger uh, and then immediately you will lose your hand. You will not even feel it. Uh, how quickly will it happen? When I spoke to uh, the Prime Minister's people here in Israel, they said that only Zelensky can decide. We cannot advise or tell him anything. The only one who, that knows exactly like uh, you said just now, Ksenia, what is good for Ukraine is him. And I think is, I think he became uh, within one day the most popular leader in the world and also the, the most lone, lonely leader in the world. And uh, can you tell us, say something about the, the Israeli attempts to mediate? Do you think Bennett has any chance or is it uh, just a stunt? Well, you know, I, we know that the Ukrainians, uh, they are interested in uh, having um, Bennett and also Erdogan, uh, two Middle Eastern leaders uh, who have good relations with both sides uh, to mediate. Uh, he probably believes, Zelensky probably believes that uh, these countries uh, will have a better chance with Russia uh, than the Western countries who are perceived as part of the you know, collective West and they also condemn Russia very strongly. And they're also part of the, of course, sanctions effort and all of that. Uh, but unlike Turkey, it's important to, th to say it, I think, uh, Turkey is having a much more independent line uh, on uh, Russia and Ukraine. Yes, it sells its uh, drones to Ukrainians. It closes its, uh, the Black Sea, the Dardanelli and the Bosphorus mm -hmm. to Russian ships. Uh, it doesn't join the sanctions, uh, but it also uh, express, uh, you know, uh, condemnations and uh, is dis dissatisfaction with the situation. Israel is trying to walk, you know, uh, on the thin ice, uh, not to anger anybody. I, I'm not certain that, uh, you know, giving this feeling of, uh, a, you know, uh, cautiousness and the, uh, 
perhaps, uh, you know, being afraid uh, of angering uh, the bear too, too much, uh, that it's a good uh, uh, background uh, to having this uh, mediation efforts. I do not know, you know, but I know that all of the all of the leaks that we saw so far, I think they were very dangerous uh, that uh, Israel tries to convince uh, Zelensky to give up and to accept the situation that are not acceptable for him. I, I hope that it's not true. This is uh, what I can say. I do not know what really happened there. Nobody knows, <laughs> but uh, I, I really hope as an Israeli uh, that it's not true. Yeah, nobody knows. And uh, they spoke yesterday an hour a, a, a conversation of one hour, Zelensky and, and Bennett. And so I'm very curious, I have to admit. And finally, uh, Ksenia Svetlova, while it's obviously too soon to know how this will uh, all end, do you think the war could change the world in terms of the balance among uh, world powers, NATO standings, Putin's future, Russia's uh, eroded deterrence, China's policies? Do we see here uh, something historic? or just another war? The world already has changed. Uh, and uh, um, sometimes I'm not sure that we in Israel understand how much, because still there is some distance between us and Europe. And it seems that everything is happening in Europe. Uh, you see Germany that is building uh, again, it's a military force ready to sell weapons. You see uh, countries like Finland and Sweden that nothing could bring him closer to, to NATO. And now they are discussing, uh, they are joining to, the, to this uh, treaty. Um, you see this unprecedented uh, unity among the countries of the European Union as never before. A weak European Union that we all uh, used to say, oh my God, you know, look at them. They cannot agree on anything among them. Suddenly they all agree because they understand what kind of danger uh, is looming, you know, at their doors. Putin doesn't just want Ukraine, you know, it's not his only goal. Of course, he wants Ukraine because he dreams about uh, an empire. I actually penned an article uh, last year and I called him about Putin and I called him a Tsar without an empire. And it seems exactly to, de to describe his feeling. He wants to rebuild his empire. So where will he stop? Uh, the Europeans are concerned that uh, he might not stop before he will uh, obtain some kind of a new security deal in Europe which will actually mean that Russia will have an upper hand. Uh, and this is uh, absolutely incredible. So uh, in this situation, when Europe is changing so fast, when US uh, is, uh, you have more and more voices that are more confident uh, that the US will, has to, uh, do the wrong, uh, to, to do the right thing and to perhaps uh, uh, more actively support Ukrainians, even if it, it, if it will mean uh, that Putin will see it as an active part uh, of this warfare. Uh, so uh, the Middle East, of course, we will see more aggressive Russia uh, without any doubt, you know, Russia that is much more willing to sell uh, advanced weapon to everybody who will ask any kind of weapon. Uh, and we have to, of course, uh, prepare to this. And again, you know, I will say it is, you know, ex-MK, uh, journalist, Israeli mother, uh, Israel has to choose right. Israel has to be on the right side uh, of uh, this historical moment, whether it's refugees, whether it's sanctions, whether it's oligarchs, and whether it's the sense of unity uh, with uh, our natural uh, camp. Uh, and it is, of course, the West. 
I'm taking from this conversation the headline, a czar without an empire. And I hope that this word did not erupt at the Xenia because he read this article and decided to get himself an empire. And, and let's, let's <laughs> pray that it will be end very soon and people will not be killed anymore. It was a fascinating conversation. Xenia Svetlova, thank you very much for joining us here in, uh, on Israel in Al Monitor. Now we will take a short break and come back with some final thoughts later. Todaraba, Xenia. Todaraba, thank you, Ben. Thanks. Hello, I'm uh, Gilles Kepel, professor at uh, Sciences Po and the Normal Soup in Paris and author of a number of uh, books and articles on the Middle East. Through my new podcast, Reading the Middle East on the award-winning media service and monitor, we will take a deep dive into the trends in the region with the authors and thought leaders who are shaping how we think about the Middle East. Reading the Middle East will be a fantastic addition to Al Monitor's outstanding podcast lineup, including On the Middle East with Andrew Paraziliti and Amber Inzaman, and On Israel with Ben Kaspit. You can subscribe on your favorite listening platforms. We look forward to your joining our conversation. Thank you for staying with us. First of all, the first headline that the former Knesset member Ksenia Svetlova gave us here is harsh criticism of the Israeli policy of this current government uh, trying to hold uh, the stick on both ends and be a seat on the fence. Uh, so uh, Ksenia Svetlova said that it is not only the the security interests of Israel in the Northern Front, because in 2014, when uh, Putin uh, uh, conquered uh, Crimea, Israel as well did not rush, rush to denounce or condemn uh, Russia. And this was before uh, Putin was involved uh, heavily in Syria. So actually, uh, she says that uh, the Israeli policy is, is unjustified. It was unjustified then in 2014, and it is uh, unjustified now in 2022. Uh, democracy, says uh, Svetlova, has to be, as uh, like we say, on the right side of history. When I asked her about her personal feelings, when she looks at the, the atrocities and the pictures and the videos and the numbers of casualties and the, and the uh, uh, refugees from her uh, from Ukraine, she said that she's stunned and she's actually in a trauma. Many of her friends and family are still in Moscow and many more went to uh, Ukraine, especially people from the Russian opposition, and many of her friends live in Kiev and in Kharkiv and in uh, all these places, and she looks at it and she tries to help, and she is uh, connected to all the friends back there, uh, try to help them escape or survive, and yes, it's, it's a huge trauma. When we're talking about uh, Vladimir Putin, she says that uh, unlike many analysts that think uh, that Putin is in a deep trouble, 
that actually step by step he is achieving his goals. Uh, Eastern and uh, the, the southeast and east of Ukraine is already uh, under Russian uh, occupation, parts of it. And Putin is uh, planning to, uh, to attach it from the rest of the country. And he's heavily bombarding the other parts of Ukraine. And uh, she answered my question and said that uh, Putin is more dangerous now uh, than he was before. And actually is more dangerous than many people uh, assessed before. And talking about sanctions, she said, although uh, it's, it's a big surprise, the, the magnitude and the, and the pace and the speed of the sanctions, but sanctions, as she said, will not save Ukraine. It, it can work uh, in the midterm or long term, but right now, right now uh, the West has to do something, not only sanctioning uh, Russia because it is, uh, it is too weak in order to, to stop the, the Russian war machine. She also gave examples of Iran that survived um, years of uh, heavy sanctions, North Korea, etc. Later I asked her what would she tell Zelensky if he would try to consult with her what decision should he take? Uh, say yes to the Russian offer? or uh, go on fighting for the independence of, uh, of Ukraine. And she said that she do not envy the policymakers in Europe, in the United States, in Israel, of course, in Ukraine, because they deal with the regime with no respect of the truth. And, uh, but the problem is that at some point they will have to form a policy, a clear one. And it's important because it's not only the Ukrainian question, Iran is looking at this crisis and may learn from it that you can uh, just uh, ignore the West, ignore sanctions, stick with your goals and achieve it. Specifically talking about this compromise that uh, they are dealing right now with the Russian offer, etc. She said that it's like uh, compromising with a bear. You give a bear your finger and he will uh, bite or take the whole arm. And uh, the one thing she wanted to, to, to say to Zelensky is, you have to decide, it is uh, your decision, and do what is right for Ukraine. And first of all, negotiate a ceasefire, not negotiate a, a settlement before there is a ceasefire. That's it uh, for, the, for this time. I hope it, you found it interesting, and we will meet here together as usual next week on the same place and the same time. I'm Ben Kaspit on Israel from Tel Aviv. Thank you, take care, and bye-bye.